Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with President Biden's emotional speech in Buffalo today, in which he said that, quote, white supremacy is a poison running through our body politic, and discuss the need for a serious national conversation about hate speech and for media outlets like Fox News and the Murdoch family to take responsibility for the content they air. Joining us is Thomas Mikaitis, a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the last 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. We'll discuss his article at The Hill, Conspiracy theories and racist rhetoric fuel domestic terrorism and what can be done to counter this growing threat of domestic terrorism. Then we'll look into the rumours swirling around questions of Putin's mental and physical health following remarks from the former MI6 spy and author of the controversial Steele dossier who claims his sources in Russia and elsewhere are telling him that Putin is, in fact, quite seriously ill. Joining us is a former expert profiler of the mental and physical health of world leaders for the State Department, Dr. Kenneth Theclaver, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2016, and is currently a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Then finally, we'll assess whether raising interest rates is the best and only tool to fight inflation and speak with Jamie Martin, a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University, whose research focuses on the history of capitalism, empire, and international order. His forthcoming book is The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance, and we'll discuss his article at the New York Times, The U.S. Wants to Tackle Inflation. Here's why that should worry the rest of the world. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Thomas Mikaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Conspiracy Theories and Racist Rhetoric Fuel Domestic Terrorism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Mikaitis. Uh, good afternoon. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Tom. And today, uh, President Biden made a very uh, emotional speech at the supermarket in Buffalo, where 10 mostly African-American shoppers were murdered and three were wounded by this 18-year-old uh, white supremacist who was influenced by this 
replacement theory. And today, President Biden said, white supremacy is a poison. It's a poison running through our body politic. Then he went on to say, in America, evil will not win. I promise you, hate will not prevail. White supremacy will not have the last word. The evil did come to Buffalo, and it's come to all too many places, manifested by gunmen who massacred innocent people in the name of a hateful and perverse ideology rooted in fear and racism. It's mm-hmm. taken so much. So that's just a bit of it, Tom. But um, you deal with counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. How do you see this in the context of the work that you do? Well, you know, when I first started doing some of the counterterrorism work for the government, we were terribly fixated after 9-11 in, you know, attacking the leadership, uh, doing decapitation strikes, uh, disrupting networks, degrading organizations, stopping finance. We've realized in the last, oh, I want to say about the last decade or so, that really we need to focus on the ideology because the threat in the United States today is not really coming. The groups are worrisome because they're heavily armed. In many cases, they're very militant. But the actual attacks in recent years have been perpetrated by these lone wolves, individuals on the fringes of the movement who drink the Kool-Aid, who absorb the ideology, and then go out and commit these atrocious acts um, on behalf of it. And the people who promulgate the ideology and the people I've called the empowerers, sadly, some of whom are prominent political figures and uh, TV talk show hosts who, you know, have essentially enabled them by saying, well, these conspiracies, you know, the replacement theory and so on, these are real legitimate concerns when they're not. And this, you know, for an 18, impressionable 18 year old uh, with very bad judgment, it's not surprising that this happens. Well, in fact, uh, President Biden did hold the the media accountable uh, mm-hmm. when he said that the root of violence and hate is fomented by, quote, the media and politics, the Internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals who falsely believe that they will be replaced by the other, by people who don't look like them and who are, therefore, in the perverse ideology that they possess and are being fed lesser beings. So he didn't name Tucker Carlson, but you did in your article, Tom. So is he in any way accepting responsibility? No, he's not. You know, last night he distanced himself from that. This is what they always do. They maintain plausible deniability, and they have not actually broken the law. They have not crossed the line to openly incite violence. But their rhetoric, um, it's kind of a two-way flow that it actually, they can get inspiration from the, the, the white supremacist rhetoric, realizing it sells, realizing it'll boost their ratings, and they can also feed it, recycle it, and empower it. But he basically did what they always do in these particular cases, which distance themselves from it, condemn the attack, and then say, um, oh, well, this is really, white supremacy isn't really, said this after uh, El Paso, he called it a hoax. This is just a deranged individual. The disaggregation of the actual uh, attack from the ideology that fuels it, and then the refusal to accept any 
uh, responsibility, even though in his April 8th, 2021 broadcast, he took this very old, what used to be a fringe belief, and basically recast it and said, oh, not only are we being replaced by immigration, the Democratic Party is intentionally doing this. They're bringing in these third world voters whom they know will be compliant liberals to allow them to have a permanent hold on power. And, you know, that's and that's been repeated by political figures, repeated by uh, J.D. Vance, the Ohio Senate candidate, who won with Trump's endorsement. To some degree, Trump himself has bought into this fear of the other, the xenophobia and so on, and various others. Liz Cheney called out the entire Republican leadership um, for, you know, exactly this sort of behavior when she, you know, she tweeted and said, you got to stop this and you've got to speak out against it. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Makaitis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the United States Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. And he has an article at The Hill, Conspiracy Theories and Racist Rhetoric Fuel Domestic Terrorism. So in that April the 8th of 2021 broadcast of Tucker Carlson's, you mentioned that Mm -hmm. He accused Democrats of deliberately replacing what he calls legacy Americans. Yes. And the New York Times did a a very, very deep dive in watching all of his programs, and they came up with over 400 references to uh, in his programs to the Great Replacement Theory, not just Mm -hmm. references, but really expounding on this theory. And apparently the research they did on his use of the word legacy Americans the only other place where that term emerges is from far-right white supremacist websites. Yeah, and I've actually I've read something. I think it was just today, suggesting that there may be a you know there may be some on the part of his you know his staff reaching into the dark web to get some of these tropes and these ideas. So that's why I said it appears to be sort of almost a two-way kind of flow. Um, you know, in terms of this going on. And, it, you know, and the thing that to me is in many ways very, very pernicious is I have a hard time believing he is not smart enough to realize these things are not true. Um, but, you know, it's just it, it, he's very useful to him. You know, this stuff really sells. It sells, you know, something like a third of the American population in a recent survey and half, almost half the Republicans believe in some variety or version of the replacement theory. So given that it sells and given that the Murdoch family are making a lot of money out of uh, Tucker Carlson, um, and apparently they don't in any way pull him over, if anything, Lachlan Murdoch, who lives in Australia, but apparently is in charge of Fox News, apparently has a direct contact with Tucker Carlson. So, and they're on the same page. So, along with holding Tucker Carlson responsible, surely we should be holding Rupert Murdoch and Lachlan Murdoch responsible as well. I Absolutely. I totally agree with that. I concluded the piece that I wrote for The Hill by saying that at the very least they have a moral responsibility. And I think, you know, we really are at a point in history where we've got to say, look, the Constitution enshrines freedom of speech. That's a good thing for democracy. But it was written in the age of print media where there were guardrails. Uh, when you and I were growing up, even if you wrote a letter to the editor of your small town newspaper, it had to be articulate, reasonably factual. Uh, free from slander and libel and so on. 
And none of that applies anymore. Um, you know, on the internet, there are no rules at all, or practically none. And these these conservative echo chambers now are perfectly happy to echo, uh, you know, and recirculate and empower these these crazy conspiracy theories. So, uh, Tom McCartis, when, when you talk about the internet and online radicalization of people like this 18-year-old mm -hmm. who massacred the African-Americans in Buffalo on Saturday. Mm -hmm. We know that Elon Musk is trying to buy Twitter, although yes. it looks like maybe he's having second thoughts, but with him, who knows? The long and the short of it is that the first thing that he said he's going to do is bring back Donald Trump, and that would definitely be an indication of Twitter going in back in the worst possible direction of not taking responsibility for the content. Yep. So there is a legal issue now in, uh, that's before the Supreme Court, and that is that the lobbying group called NetChoice, which is the tech industry's lobbying group, and that the companies behind it are Google, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and others. So they're the big tech companies. They're petitioning the Supreme Court to put a stay or put a hold on the Texas HB20 bill which was blocked last year but reinstated by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals last mm. Wednesday. And this makes it illegal. This is the anti-woke legislation that's passed in Texas that makes it illegal for any social media platform with 50 million or more U.S. monthly users to block, ban, remove, deplatform, demonetize, deboost, restrict, deny equal access or visibility to anyone or to or otherwise discriminate against expression. Now, the lobbyists are basically, for the tech companies, are basically saying that this bill strips private online businesses of their speech rights and forbids them from making constitutionally protected editorial decisions and forces them to publish and promote objectionable content. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> it's sort of ironic in a way that the tech companies want it both ways. On the one hand, they're protected by, what is it, Section 220 or 240 of the Communications Act? That I, not, I'm not sure, yeah. Yeah, they're not publishers. In other words, they're not responsible. They're like the piano player in the whorehouse. So is this going to move us in that direction to change that loophole that would then f legally force the big tech companies I mean, they obviously the the Texas law they're opposing it because it gives them no authority to police yeah. content. So think, go ahead. No, I'm saying I, I think you're absolutely right. In this case, I mean, I'm actually with the tech companies. I mean, they they have much to answer for, but we're basically seeing a groundswell of opposition from the mainstream in America saying there really need to be limits here. You know, just as you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, we need to be able to have some ability to block these terribly dangerous conspiracy theories that, let's be honest, cost lives. The estimates run as high as over 300,000 COVID deaths that wouldn't have occurred if people had listened to the science and not to the conspiracy theorists. Um, so the idea that you can put out false information um, and that really the argument we're having now is there is no such thing as an objectively verifiable fact. There is only what individuals say and they have a right to say whatever they want and whoever believes them is free to do that. 
I, I just I think that we the world has changed too much. It's it's one more example of technology getting way ahead of our, our ethical decision-making um, and any kind of framework for how we incorporate it into our lives. And, and we see the results of it in Buffalo, um, you know, in other places, not just there. So do you think that this latest uh, massacre will put the tech companies on notice? Not that, I mean, they're appealing this Texas decision to the Supreme Court. And given this, how, how conservative, uh, putting it mildly, this new Supreme Court is, they may not win, right? And I think that's absolutely true. Although, to be fair, I don't think what happened in Buffalo is to be laid at the door of the tech companies. It's more to be laid at the door of Fox News and, and others. But as I understand it, and it is not my field, the site that, that took in which he, the shooter streamed his video had that thing taken down within a couple of minutes. I mean, they responded extremely rapidly. But I don't know who, if anybody, actually controls something like 4chan or any of the other, you know, the other alternative media sites for which there are no restrictions of whether you could do anything at all about that. I, I think that, you know, it, it, that's really complicated there. I don't think you're going to ever do much about that. But the mainstream media, um, which Fox is a part of, I think that that's very different. And I, I, I don't think anybody, Elon Musk or anybody else, left, right or center, should essentially have their own private service. I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. Uh, you know, I, I think boards of directors that have some accountability to their public and their users is a healthier way to go, um, especially since so many of these things don't really have competition, you know, which in which in the ways that newspapers do. But if the Texas law is upheld by the Supreme Court and other uh, Republican led states will copy it sure then it'll be a free-for-all i mean uh, there'll yeah, be no I, restraints whatsoever well yeah and exactly if something like that were passed nationally could you force the new york times which now granted is a newspaper but more and more newspaper i mean how many people get their newspaper dropped into their driveway by you know a, ma a paper carrier the way we used to they'd hurl it up on the porch or something and how many just do what i do which is log on in the morning and read the times um, does does that mean that at some point they're required to print any content anybody wishes to? I mean, clearly they're exempted as a newspaper now because they do have responsibility. But, you know, um, in the case of Twitter, I mean, I think they made the right choice. They did not ban Donald Trump because they didn't like his politics. They were banning him on the accuracy of his statements um, and, and at some point, you know, they actually started quite mildly. They, they put in there, the, you know, the accuracy of this is disputed, the accuracy of this disputed. But I mean, how far do you let someone go claiming that an election was stolen when it clearly wasn't? And what is the damage to that that we saw on January 6th? Well, that continues. That's become the, yeah, the no bedrock dogma of the Republican Party, right? yep. 70 to 80 percent. Of Republicans believe that uh, Donald Trump is a legitimate president and Biden is illegitimate. So, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and they're not, and they're they're not going to be persuaded by any number of massacres. They're very good at disconnecting those from anything larger. I mean, it would have, it should have been enough. I mean, even if we leave aside these, we've had all these school shootings that hasn't produced one you know, step towards more responsible, you know, gun regulation. Um, people, it's very interesting. I was asked this morning on, on the CBS interview, why is it that 
um, when um, there's a white person who perpetrates this, we always immediately want to talk about his mental health. When it's someone like Omar Mateen, the Muslim man who shot up the, you know, the, the Pulse nightclub and killed almost 50 people, that we never do that. We generalize it. Oh, well, this shows you he's representative of this very violent group. But they always, they always, in the case of someone like this, and Carlson apparently did that, you know, on his show last night, said, oh, well, he's not part of any movement. He's a deranged individual. He's disturbed. This is a 180-page screed and so on. And then there's a denial of any connection with anything he might have said. You know, and you can always do that with lone wolves. You can always say, well, they're not part of any group. You know, well, that's true, but they are part of a movement and they are and they are adherents of an ideology. Well, Thomas McCartis, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Happy to do it. Uh, you have a nice uh, rest of the day. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas McCartis, who's a professor of history at DePaul University, who has taught counterterrorism courses for the past 13 years at venues around the world as part of the U.S. Department of Defense's Counterterrorism Fellowship Program. He's the author of six books, including New Terrorism, Myths and Reality, Violent Extremists, Understanding the Domestic and International Terrorist Threat, and Iraq and the Challenge of Counterinsurgency. And he has an article at The Hill, Conspiracy Theories and Racist Rhetoric Fuel Domestic Terrorism. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking at the rumors swirling around questions of Putin's mental and physical health. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Kenneth Eklever, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2016, and is now a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ken Eklever. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. It's uh, good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Ken. And uh, the author of the Steele dossier, which, of course, is somewhat controversial. Uh, he was the head of the Russian desk at the MI6 for a while, uh, and he served in Moscow for, I think, three years. He has, uh, was on Sky News today saying that his Russian sources are telling him that Putin has a serious disease, perhaps leukemia. And we've heard many rumors about it, and but Steele was, went on to say that this was affecting both Putin's physical and mental health. So how, since you did these profiles on world leaders for the State Department and investigated the, both, I guess, the mental and physical health of these uh, world leaders, what's the methodology? and how, how do you pin down these rumors? Because obviously, with a country at war like Russia, at war with its neighbor Ukraine, and it's got, I think, the world's largest nuclear arsenal, it's a serious situation. Yes, it's very serious. And and one of the key things you do in doing this kind of work, first of all, there's been a lot of speculation and, and often wishful thinking regarding President Putin's health, mostly by non-physicians. So I think that's part of the part of the problem. 
it's a difficult type of analysis to do what we would call medical intelligence or medical leadership analysis. Even when you have highly experienced physicians doing it, it's very difficult because um, uh, most of the people doing it, including myself, have have not had access to to President Putin's medical records or or seen him as a patient. So that makes it doubly challenging. So I think you rely on what we do know about his health and and the epidemiology of things that, given his past health, might be expected to cause him problems. The other the other problem with a lot of the recent media reports regarding President Putin's health, and I've written about this in a cipher brief article in March, uh, where I said that President Putin's health is the hardest of hard targets, is that a lot of these uh, reports are relying on uh, single source reporting. So my answer to, to those reports is remember Curveball and, and the whole history of uh, single source reporting leading up to the Iraq war. So I think it's it's very challenging, but I think we can sort of look at behaviors that are observed in videos and in, in press conferences and meetings with other leaders or videos made when he meets with various people in, in Russia, including athletes, uh, his uh, speeches, such as the huge Luzhniki rally at the beginning of the war and his meetings with other Russian officials. So much has been made of the television appearance of Putin sitting at that long table speaking with his defense minister Shoigu, and it looks like Putin is gripping hold of the table, you know, so he doesn't sort of fall over. I mean, are those the kind of clues that you are left sort of searching with? That's an, that's an interesting clue, but given Putin's history of being an active judo uh, practitioner for close to 50 years, uh, no, I'm sorry, 60 years, because he started when he was about nine or 10. And, and also having played ice hockey extensively, a sport he took up in his 50s. Uh, we know from the medical literature on martial arts athletes, particularly uh, judoka in Japan, that they have a lot of back and, and knee injuries from years of taking what are called high break falls and also the groundwork, which, uh, which, uh, puts a lot of strain on the back. So it wouldn't be surprising if uh, uh, if you look at the video around that time that he's gripping the table to steady himself, possibly because he's uncomfortable sitting. And you can see that he, in his um, walk in one of the videos, I think that that same conference with, with Defense Minister Shoigu, he's, he's, he's halting on one step. So that's pretty consistent with chronic low back pain that's recurrent. So my answer to that is President Putin probably needs a standing desk. Uh, there have been also other other videos that have to be looked at very carefully where there's been suggestions that he may have a progressive neurologic illness uh, and they show a tremor. But some of those appear to have been doctored because if you look at the original YouTube video, there's no tremor. And... President Putin has had enough lengthy meetings in the last several months with with uh, various officials, including world leaders, some of these meetings lasting for five or six hours on video. 
and even in person, that if he had evidence of a progressive neurologic illness, it would be very hard to suppress those symptoms in those kind of lengthy meetings. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Kenneth DeClaver, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2016, and is currently a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Well, if he has sports injuries from ice hockey and has back injuries, would that mean that he might be taking steroids? Because his face does look very puffy. Yeah, it's hard to tell if the puffiness is just due to um, kind of COVID gaining some weight and deconditioning, which happened to a lot of persons during the pandemic where they didn't do their regular exercise routine as much. My guess is Putin stopped playing hockey with his bodyguards, which is what he had done for several years before that. And it's highly unlikely that he visited a judo during the time of the pandemic because of the risk of it's a close contact. These are close contact sports. So it's possible that there's just some old age and deconditioning. So I think we have to be careful. That being said, do, do, do patients who have back injuries uh, and chronic recurrent back pain get injections of steroids? Of course they do, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't over attribute uh, to, and the typical injection of a steroid would be would be quarterly, so I wouldn't over attribute that or give it more valence than than it's worth. Low back pain is common, Ian. In the United States, probably anywhere from fifty to a hundred million people suffer from chronic low back pain. So these are common injuries. The other thing I would I would suggest to you and your listeners is to not only look at one video but look at other videos such as. After the meeting with Shoigu, President Putin met with the Russian Olympic athletes, uh, including the ice skater um, Valieva, uh, Katrina Valieva, to present them with with some honors. And, And he didn't appear to be in any discomfort walking or standing and giving a speech during that meeting. So I think one has to look at the totality of what they see and not rely on one particular video or one particular meeting. Well, the other video that people dissected was Putin's appearance uh, on Victory Day, where he's expected to declare a full mobilization, but certainly whatever he said was pretty underwhelming for most analysts and, and surprisingly muted. But... At that ceremony, it did seem that he was he was walking with a limp. And again, when he sat down at the Lenin Mausoleum with all the generals behind him, he took a blanket to cover himself. I don't know. Again, are we just sort of looking at the tea leaves uh, as yeah, we I all think, used to do during the Cold War? I think yeah, I think I think there's a, a school of Putinology here. But the other thing I would look at is is also. People uh, ought to focus on the positives that came out of his speech. As you've noted, uh, President Putin did not appear, while he reiterated old grievances that are not new and and old and tired rationale for this horrible, tragic war that he started. Uh, He didn't speak about escalation. He didn't speak about nuclear weapons. And I think he he gave an olive branch uh, to the West when he thanked uh, the Western allies for their help to 
to the Soviet Union during the Great Patriotic War, and he specifically mentioned America, Britain, and France. For him to put that in a speech, I think, is a is a interesting signal. And and the other hopeful signal that came out of that is several days later, uh, our Secretary of Defense, General Austin, uh, had his first contact video contact meeting with uh, Minister of Defense Shoigu since the war started. So there are some hopeful things that have come out of these meetings, but they're very subtle and nuanced, and people have to look and see how these continue to play out. Well, Putin's statement yesterday before the group of the former Soviet states, where he said that Finland and Sweden joining NATO is essentially no big deal, that's pretty strange when his justification for the war in Ukraine has often been cited as the concern that Ukraine would join NATO. That was, that's been the, the drumbeat for some time. So on the one hand, he goes to war against Ukraine because he, he wants to stop them joining NATO. But on the other hand, when Sweden and Finland join NATO, it's no big deal. So that kind of exposes, I think, that Ukraine joining NATO was never really the the real uh, motive behind Putin going to war against Ukraine. I think that's correct. And it's interesting that he would say that about Sweden and Finland for two reasons. One, again, it's, it's, it shows, I think, a shifting and rethinking of his longer-term position. And again, I think it's a kind of an olive branch. That being said, them wanting to join NATO is symbolic because President Putin is well aware that several days prior Turkey had uh, said that it would veto um, NATO membership for both of those countries. But I think, I think if we look at it positively, and I, uh, I, may, I may get criticized or have felt that I'm in left field for this suggestion, but I think there are subtle signals being sent that, to me, uh, having studied Putin for over 20 years, suggests that he knows this war is not going the way that, that he wanted it to or expected it to. It's been a complete horrible disaster uh, for him and for Russia, which is now really considered by many to be a pariah state. There, there are issues of war crimes investigations, potentially. Uh, the sanctions have definitely uh, hurt Russia. They've had a brain drain of close to 200,000 highly educated uh, young people in the age range of 20 to 45, that's the next generation. Uh, that's a tragedy for Russia, aside from the tragedy to the Ukrainian people. Probably 15 to 30,000 Russians have died, uh, soldiers have died in the war, and even I think over a dozen generals have been killed. So nothing about this war has gone the way that, that President Putin had thought it would or was told by people who gave him very bad intelligence that, that led to him making the strategic, uh, very strategic, huge strategic intelligence mistake. So I think there's some hopefulness that he's looking for a face-saving way uh, to to get himself out of this mess. And, and he, that wouldn't surprise me. He's always been very tactically shrewd and strategic. And that's part of his training as a KGB officer, but he grossly miscalculated here. And he, um, he, he, he needs a way out so that they can declare a ceasefire and negotiate and end this tragedy. 
The other thing I'll say for your listeners is I think we've seen a lot of uh, comments and name calling uh, that are not helpful in today's situation, which is so delicate, calling him a murderer, a thug, uh, genocidal, uh, and and for uh, General Secretary of Defense Austin to say our goal is to to weaken Russia, that feeds into a lot of narratives of grievance that not only Putin, President Putin, but his inner circle, the Siloviki, but also most of the Russian people uh, would agree with. Those grievances run deep and they're historical. And the last thing we want to do is pour gasoline on the fire. Or um, one way, if I may say, the, and also it's irresponsible, as uh, CIA Director uh, Bill Burns said this week in, in, in an interview talking about intelligence successes and gains in the public's, in, in public media is, is highly irresponsible and even dangerous. As, as my diplomatic colleagues and, and intelligence colleagues, and I would say, uh, no end zone dancing, please. Right. Well, I think Biden called up a few of his intel people and told them to stop doing that because obviously saying that U.S. intelligence helped sink the Russian Black Sea flagship and and kill a bunch of Russian generals, that is definitely rubbing salt into the wound. So when the Ukraine's head of military intelligence, Major General Badanov, says that Putin is in very bad psychological and physical condition and he is very sick, I guess, again, he's hardly a neutral source, right? Exactly. That's what I would say is it is in his interest to say that. Uh, and in the interest of other people, if if you agree with the idea that we should never negotiate an end to this war with President Putin, then an easier way from a psychological point of view, a manipulation point of view or a disinformation point of view would be to say, why bother negotiating with someone who's really sick and is going to either retire, die soon, or be replaced? Uh, then, then you would. You're, you, it has the effect of turning President Putin into a lame duck, and and it gives more juice, if you will, to people who want to push harder and harder and harder. But. Uh, both the United States and its allies have to be careful there. Uh, that old adage of be careful who or what you wish for, because if President Putin were to step down or be replaced or die because of a purported health reason, such as a cancer, which you can't tell by looking at him whether he has uh, cancer or not, he could possibly have a cancer that, that's not treatable, uh, then uh, the person who replaces him could be worse. So just in closing, uh, Ken, I was just looking at this video from the Russia's flagship Twice Daily talk show, uh, their version of 60 Minutes. And they had this retired army colonel on, Mikhail Hodanok, who Uh really (laughs) went right off the script and, and basically told the truth. And you could see from the faces of the... The moderator, you know, normally, of course, facilitates propaganda along with the other guests. They were just sort of mouth agape, where he talked about how the Ukrainians can mobilize a million soldiers, that they're highly motivated because they're patriotic and they're defending their own country. And 
on our side were not motivated. And he went on to say, the biggest problem with Russia's military and political situation is that we are in total political isolation and the whole world is against us, even if we don't want to admit it. We need to resolve this situation. So is that an indication maybe that uh, the propaganda is changing to educate the Russian people away from the jingoism into reality? I, I don't know that the propaganda is changing, but I think it's fair to say that viewpoints may be um, diversifying as, as the sanctions are taking the toll. And a, a, a fairly significant number of Russians have access to VPN or they have relatives who live overseas. So they, they know what's going on. They can talk to them and, and get the news, get a wider range of news reports. So I think that 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 certainly statements like that give me some optimism that 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 we'll see not only uh, folks in the leadership such as President Putin looking for a face-saving way out, but pressure being put on them uh, by other leaders and by uh, their own people to to find a face-saving way out uh, out of this horrible horrible tragedy. Well, Ken DeClaver, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me, Ian. I appreciate it. And again, I'll be speaking with Dr. Kenneth DeClaver, who served as a regional medical officer psychiatrist with the United States Department of State from 2002 to 2016, and he's currently a senior fellow at the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing whether raising interest rates is the best and only tool to fight inflation. What goes on? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jamie Martin, a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University, whose research focuses on the history of capitalism, empire, and international order. His forthcoming book is The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. And he has an article in the New York Times, The U.S. Wants to Tackle Inflation. Here's why that should worry the rest of the world. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jamie Martin. Thanks so much for having me on. And clearly inflation is the number one political problem for the Democrats and particularly for President Biden. And the Fed has just raised interest rates and is expected to raise them further. What's the empirical evidence that raising interest rates is the best and only tool to deal with inflation? Well, you know, I would say that traditionally, um, over the last few decades, uh, uh, monetary policy has been seen as really kind of the only show in town, really the only way to get uh, serious inflationary pressures under control. But it's a very blunt tool. Um, essentially, the kind of, you know, speaking quite kind of uh, dramatically, perhaps, the way that uh, tight monetary policy works is by uh, having a depressing effect on the economy overall. So in effect, you really you trade off 
um, achieving price stability with the cost of uh, uh, raising unemployment. Um, so really the way that the Fed operates and the way most central banks operate is by attempting to figure out um, kind of where they want to fall um, on that trade-off between employment and uh, price stability. And, you know, I think that, you know, again, this is the way that central banks work. This is the way that the, the mandate of the Fed is explicitly written in a way that this is how it operates. But I think what we're seeing right now is quite a vibrant conversation among many scholars, economists, activists, and policymakers about whether we should be thinking more broadly about other measures for tackling inflation that don't have such uh, potentially kind of stark trade-offs, um, tools that uh, you know work in alternative ways to just the blunt tool of monetary tightening, whether this focuses on building out infrastructure capacity to prevent the kind of bottlenecks that are having such deleterious effects on the U.S. economy right now or through a host of other um, um, policy tools. But I think that it would certainly be uh, safe to say that the debate in the United States right now primarily is focused on how fast and how much the Fed should raise interest rates. But my understanding is that the biggest drivers of inflation are the rising price of gas and the pain at the pump and the rising price of basic food like meat and chicken, etc., at the supermarket. And surely the people that are raising the prices of those important commodities are Mohammed bin Salman, for example, in Saudi Arabia, and MBZ, his partner in the, in the Emirates, and Putin. Uh, they all together are OPEC+. Plus and the monopolies of the meatpacking industry. So why are we talking about this tool, the Fed's tool, when you can identify the drivers of inflation? Right. So, um, you know, there, there, are, there are several reasons why this tends to dominate the conversation. Though, as I mentioned, um, one kind of heartening thing we're seeing, is, I think, is a real kind of expansion of the way many people are imagining um, responding to inflation with more targeted tools, right? Intervening in specific sectors to try to control prices, um, try to deal, trying to deal with the problem of corporate profits, um, and not just, you know, the effect that kind of wage push inflation um, is having on, on prices. Um, so, you know, one of the reasons for this is political, right? Um, interventions that tr attempt to control prices um, themselves, whether it be the price of energy or other commodities tend to be politically unpalatable and, and, and are kind of outside the mainstream of economics at this moment. And you've seen this recently on um, some economists calling for targeted price controls um, have been kind of quite brutally um, um, attacked for um, suggesting measures that fall kind of far outside the mainstream. So really, um, as I mentioned, there are, you know, there's kind of historical reasons for this and political reasons for this and reasons having to do with where mainstream economics is right now. But the Fed is seen as kind of the only real show in town. And the way that it deals with inflation is with this quite blunt tool that has unintended consequences, but that is kind of seen as really being the way um, that you that you respond to these issues, not by intervening you know, in a more targeted sense to deal with oil or to deal with food um, or what have you, but to kind of have this overall depressing effect on the entire economy. 
And again, I'm speaking with Jamie Martin, who's a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University, whose research focuses on the history of capitalism, empire, and international order. His forthcoming book is The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. And he has an article in the New York Times, The U.S. Wants to Tackle Inflation. Here's why that should worry the rest of the world. So let's talk about the example you give in your New York Times article, Jamie, which was when Jimmy Carter was dogged by inflation. And I don't know whether there's a kind of historical analogy here, because it does, in many ways, what's happened to Carter, it feels a lot like what's happening to Biden, that when you get a U.S. president who's who wants to be a reformer, it seems that they get nailed with inflation and Carter's um, head of the Fed who he appointed in 1979 Paul Volcker really did use some pretty painful medicine and of course we know that Carter was a one-term president but what you're pointing out in your article is that Volcker's decisions were felt far beyond the United States borders when interest rates rose debts accrued by foreign countries became more difficult to service now, we're already seeing Sri Lanka default on its debt, and it looks like El Salvador will default on its debt largely because of its authoritarian crackpot leader who's who's gotten the country into uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, so look, I mean, the, the, the example of Fulker here, I think, is quite telling. Um, when the U.S. Um, in the past has raised interest rates uh, dramatically, this has had quite severe effects on the global economy, and particularly on um, economies that are very vulnerable to external shocks. So the example of Fokker, you know, as you, as you mentioned, appointed uh, Fed chair in 1979 by uh, Jimmy Carter, raised uh, had the effect of raising interest rates in the United States quite dramatically, up to nearly 20 percent, um, and this uh, made the uh, foreign debts of many countries much more expensive to service, um, leading to a wave of defaults that hit Latin America with particularly acute severity, beginning with the default, the Mexican default of 1982. Um, And if you look across uh, the decade in Latin America, the kind of lingering effects of this dramatic slowdown, economic slowdown that uh, higher U.S. interest rates caused, um, these effects were quite severe. I mean, it's, it's, it's for good reason that many have come to refer to the 80s as a so-called lost decade um, in Latin America because of just how deleterious the effects of these series of defaults and sovereign debt crises were um, in the region. Well, in this current situation with the war in Ukraine, not only do these third world countries in Latin America and Africa face the problem of servicing their debt, they're also facing the problem of rising oil prices and the rising prices for basic foods because Ukraine yeah. and Russia are the, the breadbasket of the world, right? Yeah, this is a very, very serious situation. I think the severity of this really can't be um, uh, uh, taken too seriously. Look, you're seeing some countries that rely almost exclusively on importing grain from Russia um, and Ukraine um, uh, experience absolutely devastating 
cost of living crisis as the price of bread and other basic foodstuffs soars through the roof. And this is related, right? I mean, obviously, this is being precipitated. I mean, one of the major drivers of this, as you mentioned, is the war in Ukraine, which is also pushing gas prices up to, you know, quite um, uh, severe heights. But this is also crucially related to the decisions of the U.S. Federal Reserve. Um, as And we're seeing right now that the uh, value of the U.S. dollar is um, rising quite significantly right now, which is you know, uh, uh, in part related to the decision of the U.S. Fed to raise interest rates. And as the price of the U.S. dollar rises, this is going to make uh, these imports for countries that depend on imported food and, and energy resources, it's going to make those imports even more expensive, right? So what you're seeing for many emerging market and low and middle income countries is, is a, again, as I mentioned, this kind of perfect storm, right? Their debts are becoming more expensive. Their imports are becoming more expensive. You know, how do they respond to these these problems? One way is by raising their own interest rates. But this is going to, you know, have deleterious effects on their growth, deleterious effects on their you know, continued recovery from a pandemic that hasn't even come to an end yet in many places. Right. So, again, this is a very, very serious kind of concatenation of factors. And, you know, lying behind many of them are the decisions of the U.S. Fed. I mean, the U.S. Fed has a mandate that's nationally bound. It has to respond to things that are happening in the U.S. economy. But because of the outsized role of the U.S. dollar in the global economy, when the Fed makes these decisions, it has these really significant and often totally unintended global consequences. Well, your article points that out along with the fact that the International Monetary Fund estimates that about 60% of low-income developing countries are experiencing debt distress and are are close to it. That's becoming more and more apparent, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you brought up the the example of Sri Lanka, um, which uh, uh, recently defaulted and is experiencing um, uh, quite serious political and economic instability at the moment. Um, right. They ran out of examples. gasoline today, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. It's absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Lebanon, South American countries, including Argentina and Ecuador, many African countries, Angola, Mali, for example. I mean, there's just, there are kind of powder kegs of debt crises waiting to be lit around the world. Um, and I think we have to take the situation very seriously. So given then the kind of ripple effect or the domino effect, I guess you could describe it as, where you just pointed out that the Fed is a national institution that, in effect, sets monetary policy for the entire world. Volcker was unaware of the consequences of what he was doing, right? Is Powell aware of the consequences of what he's doing in terms of the rest of the world? I think so. Um, I think that there is actually quite a lot of awareness of this at the U.S. Fed. Um, uh, and you've seen, you know, in the, in, during uh, early 2020 and kind of the, the beginning of the COVID crisis, as well as during the great financial crisis um, uh, of an earlier decade, that the U.S. Fed really responded quite quickly um, on the global level by making liquidity available to many central banks, struggling central banks around the world that needed dollar financing fast. Now, it didn't do this for every central bank. Uh, but um, it did make liquidity available, recognizing clearly the role it had to play um, as a kind of global lender of last resort. Um, so I think there's a lot of awareness of this. But I think ultimately the Fed, while it claims to be you know, a non-political institution, it's kind of meaningfully different 
um, from, you know, institutions of the U.S. state that respond to electoral cycles. Nonetheless, the U.S. Fed faces real political pressures as well, obviously. And it's dealing with the fact that inflation in the United States right now is at a four-decade high. So it is quite constrained in what it kind of sees as possible for it. And I think, you know, almost um, necessarily by dint of the mandate that the Fed has, that it can't take these global contexts um, you know, as seriously as it might, even though I think many people within the Fed recognize, you know, what what uh, what may come. So just in the last few minutes, then, Jamie, let's talk about some of your suggestions here of what can be done. One of them is that the IMF could expand its issuance of special drawing rights. And the other one is that the IMF should also reduce the punitive surcharges it demands of vulnerable debtors. So expand on that, if you will. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, look, one thing that, um, you know, countries that see the cost of their debt servicing go up dramatically need um, um, is liquidity, right? Um, And the IMF traditionally has played a very important role in other global debt crises, um, and, and other global financial crises, the late uh, the 1997-1998 um, so-called Asian financial crisis, obviously the great financial crisis. Um, but the way that it tends to make resources available to borrowing countries is that it um, attaches quite serious strings um, to um, these loans, right? This is the IMF that became infamous for enforcing austerity and calling for quite dramatic liberalizing market reforms um, in countries that made use of IMF resources. So the special drawing rights, um, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an older tool, but it's a tool that recently has come more into the fore at the IMF. And it's a way of making liquidity available to member states without such um, kind of, uh, without such dramatic strings attached, right? Without demanding such far reaching structural changes and liberalizing reforms and budget cutbacks and so on and so forth. So it, you know, it was used um, um, during the early 2020 um, global economic crisis precipitated by COVID. Um, And again, it's a way of making liquidity easily and without the kind of demands attached to it to member states. The problem is that U.S. the U.S. Congress doesn't really, some members of the U.S. Congress really doesn't really don't like the use of special drawing rights because they see it as a way that U.S. dollars may um, fall into the hands of strategic rivals like Iran or Russia. So the U.S. Congress has been, you know, acting as a spoiler effectively. Um, the other thing that you mentioned and that I mentioned briefly in the article is this question of surcharges. So uh, the IMF um, has gotten into the habit of charging fees effectively to borrowers. And again, this has the effect of simply increasing the costs of servicing their debt. And there really aren't many um, great reasons for the IMF to be doing this. Or at the very least, there aren't great reasons for the IMF to be doing this at a moment of such potentially severe um, uh, debt servicing challenges for so many economies. Now, I don't think that Either of these proposals will kind of, you know, get to the bottom of the matter completely, but at the very least, they will make um, this very potentially very, very painful um, process of dealing with uh, rising borrowing costs easier for these economies that are particularly vulnerable to them. Well, Jamie Martin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. It's been great to be on. Thanks so much for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Jamie Martin, who's a professor in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of History at Georgetown University, whose research focuses on the history of capitalism, empire, and international order. His forthcoming book is The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance. And he has an article at the New York Times, The U.S. Wants to Tackle Inflation. Here's why that should worry the rest of the world. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another Background Briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past One more life.